been subjected to a kind of word salad of scientific jargon used out of context with in inappropriately, apparently uncomprehendingly. Sir Dr. Dawkins, I would like to remind you that ad hominem is a logical fallacy and that's science 101. You should know that. Ad hominem means talking about... This is my turn to speak, sir. Okay? You accused me of jargon. You accused me of misusing language. How many people understood what I was saying? You're lying. <laughs> okay? Now, basically, the atomic universe is stardust. And stardust has sentience in you and me. It's according to people like Freeman Dyson, even atoms have sentience. Atoms have no sentience. Atoms. You disagree with Freeman Dyson? Yeah, that if, if that's what he says, which I doubt, I disagree with him. <laughs> atoms do not have sentience. Atoms <clears throat> contribute to making brains. Brains have sentience. Have you seriously just said that a single cell has consciousness? A single cell has awareness. What do you mean by that? That it has the ability to respond to its environment. Of course it has the ability to respond to its environment. That is so, not consciousness. Yes, so you said a while ago atoms get together to create complexity. How do they get together? By processes which are well understood by By a biologists. process which is random or intelligent? Not intelligence. Okay. By the processes of embryology put together by the processes of evolution. You cannot seriously sit there and say that the hard problem of consciousness, and it is a very hard problem, is solved by saying that a single cell has consciousness. Uh, cognition, perception, uh, imagination, insight, I wish you intuition, guys could see uh, Richard Dawkins' face right now. Choice, freedom, the desire for meaning, purpose, all of that are expressions of awareness as consciousness and influence everything that we experience in life. You think a single cell has that? Hmm? And, and you think a, a single, single cell, cell has, that? has a rudimentary form of awareness? Do you think and an atom has that? Sorry? Do you think an atom has that? According to Freeman Dyson, yes. Freeman Dyson says an atom has awareness. Yes, sir. Check it out. If Freeman Dyson ever said atoms are aware, then he's wrong. I don't think he said it. I think he should sue you. Depth of understanding that we have yet to fathom, yet to plumb, in order to understand what's going on inside the human brain. Who's Bottles we? Who's my we? Mind. Who's we? The scientific community. The scientific community. Yes. Driven by mechanistic neural networks and chemicals? Yes, and don't let's belittle mechanistic neural networks and chemicals. They are well, very, very Well, tell me how they produce consciousness. I don't know. That's why we're working on it. Hey, you don't me. know either. No, wait. You, you say you don't know, but you totally dismiss mystical experiences. I don't dismiss it for one moment. I don't dismiss it. I want to explain it. I want Who wants to explain it? I want to explain these experiences. Who's I? I want science to explain it. When you say I, who do you mean by I? Science, in this case. So I is science? No. 
that's just a, that's just a dishonest that's dishonest to have extreme extreme confidence in the way we do science you're not open to a consciousness driven science a consciousness based science i don't know what that would even mean and observer based science <laughs> observer based science is another matter of course but the science is necessarily observer based well observer we is to, consciousness we need to isn't the observer... You don't have a monopoly of consciousness. We all have consciousness. Okay. We're trying to explain... Un aplauso para los dos. Wow. Denial of evolution is unique to the United States. I mean, we are the world's most advanced technological... So, I mean, you could say Japan. But generally, the United States is where most of the innovation still happens. People still move to the United States. Uh, that's just Bill, not a science guy. Because God. of the intellectual capital we have, the, the general understanding of science. When you have a portion of the population doesn't believe in that, it holds everybody back, really. Evolution is the fundamental idea in all of life science, in all of biology. It's like, it's very much analogous to trying to do geology without believing in tectonic plates. You're just not going to get the right answer. Your whole world is just going to be a mystery instead of an exciting place. As my old professor Carl Sagan said, when you're in love you want to tell the world. So once in a while I get people that really that or that claim they don't believe in evolution. And my response generally is a why not? Really, why not? Your world just becomes fantastically complicated when you don't believe in evolution. I mean you here are these ancient dinosaur bones or fossils. Here is uh, radioactivity. Here are distant stars that are just like the our star, but that are at a different point in their life cycle. The idea of deep time of this of billions of years uh, explains so much of the world around us. If you try to ignore that, your your worldview just becomes crazy. It just uh, untenable, itself inconsistent. And I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your, in your uh, world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it, because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can, uh, we need engineers that can build stuff, solve problems. It's just really a hard thing. It's, it's really a hard thing. You know, in another couple centuries, that, that worldview, I'm sure, will be... It just won't exist. It's... It amazes me that people have pre-existing notions that defy the evidence of reality, but they, that they hold on to them so dearly. And one of them is the notion of creationism, or in fact, look, Senator Marco Rubio, who's presumably a reasonably intelligent man, and maybe even educated, was asked, what's the age of the Earth? And ultimately, either because he, he actually believed it, or he, or he was trying to appeal to some constituency, had to argue that it's a big mystery, that somehow we should teach kids both ideas, that the Earth is 6,000 years old, and that it's 4.55 billion years old, which is what it is. <coughs> if you think about that, 
somehow saying that, well, anything goes. We, you know, we shouldn't offend religious beliefs by requiring kids to know, to understand reality. That's child abuse. And if you think about it, teaching kids that the, or allowing the, the notion that the, the, that the earth is 6,000 years old to be promulgated in schools is like teaching kids that the distance across the United States is 17 feet. That's how big an error it is. Now you might say, look, a lot of people believe that, so don't we owe it to them to, to allow their views to be present in school? Well, as I've often said, the purpose of education is not to validate ignorance, but to overcome it. 50% of the people in the United States, when we probe them each year with the National Science Foundation, think that the, that the sun goes around the earth, not that the earth goes around the sun. When we ask the question, and we, we provide the question, the earth goes around the sun and takes a year to do it, true or false? Almost every year, 50% of the people get that wrong. Now, does that mean in schools we should allow the, 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 the anti-Galilean and Copernican idea that the sun goes around the earth to be taught? Absolutely not. If in fact, the very fact that people don't know that, and the very fact that enough people are willing to somehow believe the earth is 6,000 years old, means we have to do a better job of teaching physics and biology, not a worse job. The last thing we want to do is water down the teaching of biology because some people don't recognize that evolution happened. Evolution is the basis of modern biology. And in fact, if, if a lot of people don't believe it, it only means we have to do a better job teaching it. So once again, I repeat, the purpose of education is not to validate ignorance, but to overcome it. Galileo was quite controversial, of course, in his time, because he was claiming that something that we all could see with our own eyes wasn't true. We could all see that the Earth doesn't move, and that the sun and moon and stars go around the Earth, and we believed that as a race for about 2,000 years, and Galileo was saying that the, your eyes are lying to you. The Earth actually moves, and it's not the center of the universe. And uh, he was put under house arrest for it. We don't like to be told that our senses aren't telling us the truth. And then Galileo took it an another step. He said, it's not just that our senses are lying about movement of the Earth. He said that he thought that tastes, odors, colors, and so on reside in consciousness. Hence, if the living creature were removed, all these properties, these qualities, would be utterly annihilated. That's almost a direct quote in, in the translation. So he was saying that our senses are also making up the tastes, odors, and colors that we experience. They're not properties of an objective reality. They're actually properties of our senses that they're fabricating. And, and by objective reality in this case, um, I'm going to use that term in a very specific way. If I'm, by objective reality, I mean what most physicists would mean. And that is that something is objectively real if it would continue to exist, even if there were no creatures to perceive it. So the standard story, for example, is that the moon existed before there was any life on Earth, you know, perhaps before there was any life in the universe but it still existed. It, its existence does not depend on the perceptions of any creatures. And so that's the sense in which I'll talk about objective reality. And 
what Galileo was saying was that colors, odors, tastes, and so on are not real in that sense of objective reality. They are real in a different sense. They're real experiences. And so I'll talk about real experiences. So your headache is a real experience, even though it could not exist without you perceiving it. So it, it, it exists in a different way than the objective reality that physicists talk about. So, so Galileo was, was quite brave and quite out of the box in his thinking by saying not only the earth and its movement, but even colors, tastes, and odors are our perceptual constructions. But he wouldn't go the next step. He wouldn't say that shapes and mass and velocities of objects and space and time themselves are our constructions. He thought that those were objectively real. So the shape of the moon, the position of the moon, um, is an objectively real thing, including its mass and its, and its velocities. So this is a distinction that was later called the primary and secondary qualities distinction by, by John Locke. Um, primary qualities are things like position, mass, shape, and so forth. These are presumed to exist even if no creature observes them, whereas colors and odors and tastes are secondary qualities uh, that um, are sort of mostly the contribution of our senses. And in brief, what I'm saying is we need to take the next step beyond what Galileo said. It's not just tastes, odors, and colors that um, are the fabrications of our senses and are not objectively real. It's rather that space-time itself and everything within space-time, objects, the sun, the moon, electrons, quarks, their shapes, if objects have shapes, their masses, their velocities, all of these physical properties are also our constructions. And I've come to that conclusion. Um, it was a bit of a shock to me. Um, we always <laughs> assume that our senses are telling us the truth. So it was quite a stunning shock to me when I realized that maybe we needed to take a step beyond Galileo on this. And the, the reason I'm saying this is because of evolution by natural selection. Most of my colleagues in the cognitive and neurosciences um, assume that our senses tell us the truths that we need to survive. That seeing reality accurately will make you more fit. And I would say that that makes perfect sense. You know, The argument is that those of our ancestors who saw reality more accurately had a competitive advantage over those who saw it less accurately in you know, the, the basic uh, activities of life, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. And because they had a competitive advantage, they were more likely to pass on their genes, which coded for the accurate perceptions. And so after thousands of generations of that, we can be quite confident that we see reality as it is. Of course, not all of reality. No one claims that our senses exhaustively tell us all the truths about objective reality. But from an evolutionary point of view, the idea is, we see those aspects of reality accurately that we need to survive. And so when we see space and time, we see physical objects with their shapes and, and motions and so forth, um, we're, we're seeing truths, objective truths, truths about you know, objects 
that would exist even if no creature were there to perceive them. That's the standard view. And it seems intuitively plausible. The argument that I just gave is, is actually in the textbooks um, in, in my field. But it turns out that we don't have to just deal with plausibility here. Evolution by natural selection is a mathematically precise theory. There is the field of evolutionary game theory that was established in the 1970s by John Maynard Smith and has flourished. It's, it's now a very advanced and, and very interesting mathematically precise field. It, it unites Darwinian evolution by natural selection with the tools of game theory, and it's very, very powerful. So we don't have to guess or wave our hands anymore. We can actually run simulations and prove theorems about the effects of natural selection on our senses. We can ask a technical question. Does natural selection favor organisms with sensory systems that tell them truths about reality, objectively? It's a clean technical question. And it turns out there is a clean technical answer that comes from evolution, and it's quite surprising. I first started this about 12 years ago with a couple of graduate students of mine, Justin Mark and Brian Marion. We ran hundreds of thousands of evolutionary game simulations in random worlds with resources and creatures that had to forage for these resources. And we played God. Some of the creatures got to see the truth, others didn't. And the ones that didn't, we had them just perceive the fitness payoffs. And we can talk a little bit about fitness payoffs a little bit later. That's a key, key notion in evolution. And what we found was, in the simulations, organisms that saw the truth uh, never outcompeted, never outperformed creatures in our simulations that saw none of the truth and were just perceiving the fitness payoffs. So that gave me some confidence that maybe there was a theorem here. And so I proposed a theorem to a very talented mathematician named Chetan Prakash, with whom I've worked for, for many years. Chetan and I discussed it, worked on it, and Chetan brought it home. He, he proved the theorem. An organism that sees reality as it is, is never more fit than an organism of equal complexity that sees none of reality and is just tuned to the fitness payments. Translated, that means if you see the truth, you'll go extinct. <laughs>